Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The Columbian Exchange was the widespread transfer of human populations, plants, animals, precious metals, commodities, culture, technology, diseases, religion, and ideas between North America in the Western Hemisphere and the Afro-Eurasian Old World in the Eastern Hemisphere. It is named after the Italian explorer Christopher Columbus and is related to the European colonization and global trade following his 1492 voyage. Some of the exchanges were purposeful, some were accidental or unintended. Jack Henneman of the History of the Americans podcast has kindly agreed to share his interpretation on the Columbian Exchange. I hope you enjoy this second half of his analysis. As many people as the exchanged diseases killed quickly, the transfer of foods from one hemisphere to the other as part of the Columbian Exchange had an even greater impact on human population, this time promoting growth. The Columbian Exchange transformed the global supply of food in two ways. Western Hemisphere staples, developed over thousands of years by indigenous breeders, were imported to the much more populous Old World to transformational effect. And Eastern Hemisphere crops like sugar and rice went the other way and found climates and soils where they grew explosively. Western Hemisphere crops like potatoes, maize, sweet potatoes, cassava, beans, and squash delivered more calories and better nutrition to Eastern Hemisphere diets. No Old World grain packs more food energy into an acre than maize. One can live off potatoes and butter alone indefinitely. The big advantage of the New World staple crops, however, is that they can often be grown in Old World climates and soils that were not productive for the cultivation of Old World grains. The great advantage of the American food plants is that they make different demands of soils, weather, and cultivation than Old World crops and are different in the growing seasons in which they make these demands. In many cases, the American crops do not compete with Old World crops but complement them. The American plants enable the farmer to produce food from soils that prior to 1492 were rated as useless because of their sandiness, altitude, aridity, and other factors. In particular, and perhaps ironically, Africa and its peoples have been among the greatest beneficiaries of New World crops. Maize is grown all over Africa, and some African countries is the single most important source of calories. Cassava, which is not such a big deal in rich countries, is even more important in Africa than maize. The top 10 cassava-consuming countries are all in Africa. Five of the top 10 sweet potato-consuming countries are in Africa. The importance of New World crops to the African diet is so profound that the population of Africa is much larger today and better fed only on account of them. The potato may have had the single greatest impact on the Eastern Hemisphere. There are also New World foods that do not deliver very many calories, but have had a massive impact on the quality of life of ordinary people all over the world. The most important are capsicum peppers, tomatoes, cacao, and vanilla. Capsicum annum, which was domesticated in Mesoamerica, has led to bell peppers, cayenne peppers, and jalapenos. Capsicum frutescens, originally from the Amazon, give us tobacco. Paprika, the spice made from grinding dried capsicum pepper, first appears in Hungary in 1569, 
and fans of Hungarian food, even today regard it as the national spice. Capsicum peppers arrived in Europe and Africa by 1493, and India by 1542. For Nun and Kian, the capsicum has also had a significant impact on the cuisine of many other countries. In South and Southeast Asia, some form of pepper is used as the base of almost every dish. In China, cuisine in the Southwest is defined by uses of certain chili peppers. In Korea, a side dish of spicy kimchi is consumed with every meal. And of course, capsicum peppers are some of the most vitamin-rich foods to be had. Tomatoes originated in an unidentified wild ancestor from South America. According to man, half a dozen wild tomato species exist in Peru, all but one inedible, producing fruit the size of a thumbtack. Botanists today believe they were first cultivated about a thousand years before Columbus. To botanists, the real mystery is how the progenitor of today's tomato journeyed from South America to Mexico, where native plant breeders radically transformed the fruit, making them bigger, redder, and most important, more edible. Why transport useless wild tomatoes for thousands of miles? Why had the species not been domesticated in its home range? It's a mystery. Tomatoes took longer than other New World crops to be cultivated in Europe, in part because they are not easily transported and do not last very long once off the vine. The first European text to mention tomatoes as food to be eaten with oil, salt, and pepper is dated 1544 and, not surprisingly, Italian. Cultivation spread in Italy, Spain, and France in the late 16th century, but tomatoes did not really take off as a global food until they could be preserved by canning, which mechanized in the late 19th century. Notwithstanding the late start, the tomato caught up quickly and today has been integrated into so many different diets around the world that it provides more nutrients and vitamins in absolute terms than any other fruit or vegetable. The tomato is so ubiquitous today that it provides humans with more nutrients in the aggregate than any other fruit or vegetable. And to thank for that boon, we have ancient Indian botanists in Mexico who unlocked the promise of a barely edible plant from more than 2,000 very treacherous miles away. Finally, we would be remiss if we did not mention cacao and vanilla, both of which have immeasurably improved the lives of billions of people. The Aztecs were cultivating cacao in the Yucatan before the Spanish arrived, and Columbus brought back specimens of cacao pods to Ferdinand after his second voyage. The Spanish did not cultivate it in the Old World until 1590, but thereafter the market for chocolate grew throughout Europe. Chocolate drinks first emerged as a rare luxury consumed by aristocrats at court, but by the end of the 1600s were a regular luncheon beverage of the middle class in England. Today, seven of the top ten producers of cacao beans are in the old world, and four of those are in Africa. Ivory Coast produces seven times the cacao of Brazil, which is the leading New World producer. Vanilla is, in some respects, even more interesting than chocolate. Vanilla is a crop that, despite being completely unknown to the old world prior to 1492, and despite having little nutritional importance, has become so widespread and so common that in English its name is used to refer to anything that is plain, ordinary, or conventional. Vanilla comes from the tropical forests of eastern and southern Mexico, Central America, and northern South America. It is from the fruit of Vanilla planifolia, the only species of the orchid family that produces edible fruit. 
As most of you no doubt know, but I did not, vanilla pods don't really smell or taste like vanilla. The pods need to be fermented to produce the vanillin that drives the unique vanilla flavor. By the end of the 1500s, the Spanish were importing vanilla and flavoring chocolate with it. Spanish King Philip II would have a vanilla chocolate drink as a nightcap, which strikes me as a darn good and probably much needed sleep aid. Vanilla turned out to be very difficult to domesticate outside of its native habitat because it apparently requires just the right pollinators. That problem was finally cracked in the 1830s when a Belgian botanist figured out how to hand-pollinate vanilla orchids. Today, nine of the ten largest producers of vanilla are old-world countries, with Indonesia producing six times as much as Mexico, the only Western Hemisphere country to crack the top ten. Now let's look briefly at the old-world crops that flourished when cultivated in the new. The Western Hemisphere contains about 26% of the world's arable land, which suggests that if more than 26% of the global production of a crop comes from the Americas, it is relatively more productive as a transplant to the New World. The Old World crops that have done particularly well under the New World conditions are sugarcane, soybeans, barley, bananas, oranges, coffee, and sorghum. The fact that old world crops flourished in the new world and new world crops flourished in the old is not just coincidence. It is in part the result of two aspects of the Columbian exchange. First, both the new world and the old world contain continents that lie on a north-south orientation and span nearly all degrees latitude. Because climates change most drastically as one moves north and south rather than east and west, This helped to ensure that the New World plants could find an Old World climate similar to their native climate and vice versa. Second, there was also a benefit that arose from the two regions being isolated for thousands of years. The isolation caused separate evolutions of plants, parasites, and pests. Therefore, transplanted crops often flourished because they were able to escape the pests and parasites that had co-evolved with them in their native habitat. Because of the greater prevalence of pests and parasites in tropical regions, tropical plants benefited most from transplantation. This partially explains why today 57% of the production of coffee is produced in the New World and why 98% of natural rubber is produced in the Old World from transplanted rubber trees originally from the New World. The Americas currently produce 84% of the world's soybeans, 65% of its oranges, and 35% of its bananas. This boon is obviously the beneficial side of a phenomenon that can get quite ugly. Invasive species such as kudzu thrive as well, and pests that hop along from one hemisphere to the other can devastate an ecosystem, as any fan of the American chestnut well knows. Since reading about the Columbian Exchange, I cannot help but think of the many nice things in our lives today that come from it. My cigar is quintessential New World, even if I don't smoke it through my nose in the original Cuban-Indian fashion. I paired it with an IPA made with hops and barley, both Old World. And then an Old Fashioned. The maize for the bourbon is New World. The sugar is Old World in origin, but was only inexpensive in the 1880s when the cocktail was invented because of New World cultivation, originally under brutal conditions. The orange and cherry are Old World and the Angostura bitters were invented to combat mostly old-world tropical diseases in the service of overthrowing the Spanish colonial governments. Many a life's pleasures flow directly from history's most violent moments. 
The biological success of sugar in the Western Hemisphere, coupled with a tremendous demand for it from the Eastern Hemisphere, was the first big catalyst for slavery in the New World. And as we have seen, the diseases spread from the Eastern Hemisphere ensured that the slaves would not, over the long term, be Indians. Indigenous people are often seen as static recipients of transatlantic encounters, but thousands of Amerindians crossed the ocean during the 16th century. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying visuals, including maps, charts, timelines, photos, illustrations, and diagrams. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.